You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. After a string of failed jobs and one failed marriage, 62-year-old Rodney Harrell decided he wanted to get away from it all. Like, really away. He hitchhiked 260 miles, or over 400 kilometers, to Fort Fisher State Recreation Area in North Carolina, where he would become known as the Fort Fisher Hermit. But first, he had to bust out of the mental hospital his in-laws had committed him to, which he did with an old spoon fashioned into a key. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We're all hunkered in our bunkers these days, But even if we're not sheltering with family or roommates, we have technology connecting us. But sometimes you just want to go where nobody knows your name, because there's nobody there. We're talking today about hermits, from the Greek eremos, meaning wilderness or an isolated place. There are all sorts of reasons why a person might pick up and leave their community behind to live a simple, solitary life. Some people begin their life of solitude when they go into hiding and simply never come back out. Such as with Canadian Willard MacDonald, who jumped from a troop train in Nova Scotia after being drafted into World War II. Two other men jumped with him, but they were later caught. When you get shanghaied like that, you get armed. So MacDonald had a three hundred three rifle on him, which definitely came in handy in his new home. MacDonald built a one-room shack near Gully Lake in the wilds of Nova Scotia and lived in it for the next 60 years. At first he had to rely on hunting and fishing to survive, but residents of a nearby town soon discovered him and began to help him get food and supplies. Later in life, the same friends helped MacDonald become the first Canadian to receive his pension without having to sign for it. Living alone in a cave seems especially practical when your life has hit rock bottom. Take Valerio Ricchetti, an Italian apprentice stonemason who moved to Austria in 1914 at age 16 to escape the war that was about to kick off. He lived with an expat Italian family for a while and worked as a miner until the fateful day he lost all of his money in a brothel. He didn't spend it. He didn't get rolled. He just literally lost it. Maybe it was his time spent underground that made the cave that he found near the town of Griffith so appealing that he called it his Garden of Eden. His training in stonemasonry gave him the skills he needed to make his cave homey, complete with a fireplace, sleeping nook, stairway, and even a little chapel. He lived in the cave for over two decades, before World War II showed up to collect on what World War I missed. Ricchetti was taken to an internment camp when Italy entered World War II in 1940. He was later released, and eventually went to live with his brother in Italy. A cause or a need to make a statement lures still others away from the sacred and inane. 
Noah Rondeau lived alone in the forest to escape the prospects of what was not yet late-stage capitalism. Rondeau was a hunter and trapper when he began living alone in the woods of New York at age 46 in 1929. He called himself the mayor of Cold River City, population one. He'd been practicing essentially for the previous 15 years, living alone for part of the year in an 8 by 12 foot cabin. He wrote to a local newspaper that he had, quote, dodged the American labor failure and was living as a hermit to avoid working for someone else for long hours and low wages. He made it 21 years on his own before a hurricane damaged his home beyond repair. In 2000, Oxford University graduate Emma Orbach moved into a mud hut in western Wales in order to reduce her environmental impact. The round hut is 13 feet or about 4 meters in diameter with no electricity or running water. She keeps chickens, goats, and horses, and her family is nearby, though they choose to live in a conventional house. Also, Orbach says fairies live in the hut with her. Perhaps not as much a fan of native mud, British newspaper editor Brendan Grimshaw purchased Moyne Island in the Seychelles in the early 1960s for the amazing bargain price of just over $10,000. And that's $87,000 today, which is still a lot of money, unless you're in the market for an island. After moving there in 1973, Grimshaw planted thousands of trees and took care of the over 100 giant tortoises native to the island. His stewardship of the environment led to his home being declared a national park. Religious devotion has led many a person away to a life alone. Christian hermits in the 3rd century lived as ascetics in the Egyptian desert, inspired by Old Testament figures who withdrew from their people to live lives of poverty and prayer. These desert fathers were the basis for Christian monasticism, i.e., monks, nuns, and other devotees living apart from society. One of these hermits, Pacomius, who organized nine monasteries and two convents, is credited as the founder of communal monasticism in the Western world. The word my original source used there was cenobitic, which means a member of a religious group living in a monastic community, but it made me think of the Cenobites from Hellraiser, and then I thought other people might think that too, and then you'd be picturing Pinhead in a monk's cassock, and the whole podcast just falls apart. Bonus fact, female Christian hermits who are not part of an order are called an anchoress, spelled like you might spell a female anchor, from the Greek word anchorio, meaning to withdraw or retire. You don't have to look back in time very far to find Christian hermits. In 1993, a 63-year-old monk in Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, not the state, took up residence on top of the Katakshi Pillar, a 130-foot-tall limestone rock, only coming down when he needed supplies. For the first two years on the rock, the monk slept inside a refrigerator to protect himself from the elements. How did a refrigerator get to the top of a 130-foot-tall rock? He now lives in a small cabin on the pillar that some local Christians help him build. It takes him about 20 minutes to climb down the ladder to the base of the pillar, to the small religious community his monastic pledge inspired. What's he going to do when he gets too old to make the climb? Easy. He says he plans to simply die in his cottage. For an adherent less likely to trigger acrophobia, look to Scotland, 
where Sarah Maitland lives in solitude in a house she built herself, overlooking miles of moorland. She's not exactly a card-carrying Christian hermit, meaning she isn't supervised by the local bishop, but she did remove herself from society to feel closer to God. People think being a hermit is selfish, according to Matlin. If I say I want to sail a small boat around the world and it takes me two years, everyone says, oh, how exciting. If I say I want to go and sit in my house and not talk to anyone for two years, they say, have you got mental health issues, or why are you so selfish? In her book, A Book of Silence, she writes about her experiences in solitude and the different and very common experiences of people who spend long periods of time alone. Inhibitions? Gone. It's not like you have to worry about manners or being polite to please others. Some of us know what that feels like. Looking at you, my fellow 2pm pajama wearers. Maitland also reports what she calls sensory intensification. It wasn't that it tasted particularly fabulous in any mysterious sense, it just tasted more. So porridge tasted more of porridge. Baths were fabulous. They weren't just some warm water. They became a complete luxurious experience. And when you got cold, you got incredibly cold. And just felt it. And then she began to hear things. Auditory hallucinations are not uncommon among hermits, and Maitland said she heard a huge choir singing in Latin coming from her tiny house in the middle of nowhere. It's Maitland's belief that people should purposefully enjoy silence. For a lot of us, the only time we're faced with a great deal of silence is after a negative experience, like a relationship breakup or a death. She thinks it would be better if people learned in childhood to experience solitude as something positive. As a child who was always off on her own, just me and my hyperactive imagination, I concur. There was one Christian hermit who could be said to have been the most Christian hermit who ever hermited. The Hermit Pope. To tell you all about him is someone much more qualified to pontificate on pontiffs than I. Welcome the Pontifax Podcast. Hi, I'm Brie from Pontifex, and I'd like to tell you about Pope Celestine V, the hermit who quit the papacy. Born in 1215 as Pietro Angelario, the future pope showed a peculiar penchant for strict ascetic living. By age 17, he became a Benedictine monk and hermit, living in a cave on the Morone Mountain. After five years there, he moved to an even more remote mountain cave on Monte Mayala, where he also wore a hair shirt and chains every day, fasted excessively, and allowed himself very little sleep. In the medieval world, religious hermits were considered to be the pinnacle of piety and were greatly admired, and the extremity of Pietro's asceticism soon became practically legendary, drawing many followers. This was not the reclusive life he wanted, but it did lead to the foundation of his own monastic order, with stricter discipline and privations than the rule of St. Benedict. The order received personal papal protection and endowment from Pope Urban IV in 1264, which made the order wildly popular, and before long, Pietro was the superior general to 600 monks in 36 monasteries. But this was also not the reclusive life that he craved, and as soon as the order was functioning to his satisfaction, Pietro gave up the superior generalship to another and retreated to his mountain hermitage to live in solitude for the next 28 years. 
and likely this is where Pietro would have stayed for the remainder of his life had it not been for the events of the papal election of 1292. After the death of Pope Nicholas IV, the cardinals had gathered for the election, but they could not come to a consensus. The cardinals were divided on cultural and political lines, so there was no movement and no compromise. And since the strict laws of conclave had been relaxed, the cardinals were not compelled to work towards a timely resolution as they came and went, dragging and postponing the election process out for two years. But a popeless church causes uncertainty and unrest in the people, so much so that it even reached Pietro the Hermit on his mountain. He wrote to the cardinals and warned them that God would punish them if they did not come to an immediate consensus and elect a pope. Now, Pietro's reputation preceded him, and the cardinals were well aware of the pious mountain hermit, and either out of consideration for his warning, or trying to find a way out of their deadlock, the cardinals agreed that they should elect Pietro by acclamation to be the next pope. This is not at all what Pietro had wanted. And you can imagine his horror when emissaries arrived at the mountain to tell him that he was the new pope. He initially refused, and was only convinced to accept when he was persuaded slash pressured by a delegation that included the king of Naples. He was consecrated as Pope Celestine V on August 29, 1294, at the age of 81. But the cardinals probably should have allowed Pietro to refuse. He was underprepared and ill-equipped to be Pope. He was perpetually overwhelmed, slow to make decisions, he didn't consult the cardinals, and he was unduly influenced by King Charles II of Naples. Moreover, he recognized all of this in himself, and he was fully aware that he was an ineffectual Pope, and he began to consider abdicating. However, there were no official church protocols on abdication at the time. It had happened, but it had never been particularly regular or formalized. So, to ensure that he didn't face resistance, he issued a decree confirming the right of a pope to abdicate. And then one week later, on December 13th of 1294, Pope Celestine V officially abdicated after only five months of being pope. Now, he intended to return to his mountain to live out the remainder of his days as a hermit. Unfortunately, not everyone was happy about his abdication, and even less so about the man who succeeded him, which was Pope Boniface VIII. And the new pope began to grow concerned that his adversaries might install Pietro as an anti-pope to rival him, and so he commanded that Pietro would not return to the hermit life, but would instead accompany the new pope to Rome. Well, this also didn't suit Pietro who attempted to escape to Dalmatia, but his ship was forced to turn back due to bad weather, and he was apprehended and imprisoned by Pope Boniface. He was kept in Castello di Fumone and died ten months later on May 19th of 1296. Now, at the time, detractors of Boniface spread rumors that Celestine was murdered, although there is no evidence to suggest this. He was nominated for sainthood shortly after his death and canonized in 1313. If you've enjoyed this and you'd like to hear more interesting stories about the popes, check out Pontifax. Our lighthearted papal history podcast reviews all of the popes from Peter to Francis, and you can find us at pontifax.podbean.com or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Some people are drawn to a life of isolation for personal or spiritual reasons, but what about professional reasons? For a brief time in Georgian-era Britain, you might be able to find gainful employment as an ornamental hermit. This new occupation came from the 18th century naturalistic movement in garden design. Famed landscape designer Lancelot Brown, which is a cool enough name on its own, let alone with his nickname of Capability, shunned the formal French style of gardens like you see in period movies. The immaculate, expansive flat lawns, elaborately shaped hedges, and geometric gravel paths. Brown preferred meandering paths past romantic lakes, natural clumps of trees, and cute little buildings called follies that were built to look like they were old and beginning to degrade, but in a really charming way. You would also find a hermitage, be it a one-room cabin of stone or a grotto of twisted roots and branches. If you build a hermitage, you'd better get a hermit to put in it. Real hermits were hard to find. That's kind of the point of being a hermit. So wealthy landowners put help-wanted ads out, offering room, board, and a little money for those willing to live alone on the grounds so that guests could visit them. If you could offer sage-sounding sound bites, that was a real plus. The Honorable Charles Hamilton placed one such ad for a hermit to live on his estate for seven years in exchange for 700 pounds, what's roughly about $77,000 in today's money. It's not clear if that was for the full seven years, but if you're meant to stay on the property and your rent and meals are covered, what were you going to spend it on anyway? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? 
Hamilton stipulated that his hermit was not to speak to anyone, cut his hair, or leave the estate. The fellow that took the job was sacked three weeks in when he was found in a local pub. We have records also of people actively seeking this line of work. An ad from 1810 reads, A young man who wishes to retire from the world and live as a hermit in some convenient spot in England is willing to engage with any nobleman or gentleman who may be desirous of having one. And a letter addressed to S. Lawrence, postpaid, to be left at Mr. Otten's number 6 Coleman Lane, Plymouth, mentioning what gratuity will be given, and all other particulars will be duly attended. No word on how his job search went. One of the more famous Gregorian hermits was Father Francis of Hawkstone Park, Shropshire. On the table of his thatched roof cottage, he displayed symbolic items to ponder while offering his ponderings to visitors, among them a skull, an hourglass, and a globe. Father Francis's hermitage was such a popular attraction that his employers, the Hill family, built a pub to cater to all the visitors. If a nobleman couldn't hire a suitable hermit, he might press a family member into service, as botanist Gilbert White did with his brother, the Reverend Henry White, for the sake of a garden party. Or the noble might just make it look like he had a hermit living there, by making the hermitage look lived in and adding eccentric accessories. Some took their hankering for a hermit a step further and employed an automaton instead. An automaton isn't a robot per se, but more like an extremely intricate clockwork figurine. If you're not familiar with automata, do yourself a favor and set aside an hour to look some up on YouTube. You will be astounded at what the craftsmen could make these figures do hundreds of years ago. An automaton, or possibly just a dummy, was apparently used at Hawkstone Park to replace Father Francis after his death though not too convincing effect. According to the equivalent of a TripAdvisor review, The face is natural enough, the figure stiff and not well managed. The effect would be infinitely better if the door were placed at the angle of the wall and not opposite you. The passenger would then come upon St. Francis by surprise, whereas the ringing of the bell and door opening into a building quite dark within renders the effect less natural. Much like razor scooters, planking, and fidget spinners, ornamental hermits fell out of fashion pretty quickly, possibly for lack of suitable candidates. It's not completely gone, though. In 2017, a 58-year-old man moved into a hermitage in the mountains of Austria. He beat 49 other candidates for the post, despite the lack of running water, heat, or internet. The hermitage, which has been continuously inhabited for the last 350 years, welcomes visitors to come and enjoy spiritual conversation with their resident hermit, and expects plenty of guests. Guests often bring presents. Presents come in boxes, and I just got a great box in the mail. Advanced copies of the Your Brain on Facts book. If you want to get your hands on a copy before it's officially out, tune in to what will probably be the only unboxing video I ever do in my life. This Friday, June the 5th at 9 p.m. Eastern, when I'm going to read a book-exclusive section to you. Everyone who comes in to watch is entered to win a signed copy of the book. All you have to do is comment with a fact that you learned from the podcast. Look for a pinned post on Facebook and Twitter later this week for where to watch as soon as I figure out how I'm going to do it. 
Connecting with nature is a major part of the lives of hermits, but it's not to the exclusion of science, especially for Billy Barr. In an old mining shack in the Rockies, Barr has recorded daily observations of his environment since 1974. High and low temperature, total snowfall, snow depth, and when animals emerge, disappear, and migrate. His record-keeping has evolved into an invaluable resource of data for scientists studying the effects of climate change. He's known in the region and in the biz as the Snow Guardian. Barr, born in New Jersey, took a short-term job as a researcher at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory measuring water quality in the West Elk Mountains in Colorado when he was about 21. Gothic, Colorado is one of the coldest places in the United States, and it was abandoned in the 1920s, making it one of the loneliest, too. To assuage some of his boredom, Barr began making ridiculous records of his surroundings. Record-keeping, of all things, had been a lifelong hobby of his. It's nothing more than quantitative journaling, if you think about it. It must have been good to have something to focus on, to keep his mind off the 8x10 metal shed that he lived in, which plenty of wild animals were trying to share with him. But he grew accustomed to the solitude and the stillness. Barr thought he might go to graduate school and then come back before he realized he was already there, so he might as well stay. So Barr began to build his own house, which would eventually be kitted out with solar panels. Twice a week, he skis 10 miles or 16 kilometers to town for groceries. And when he's not recording the depth of snow twice a day, he relaxes with a cup of tea and a Bollywood movie. It was only toward the end of the 1990s that a scientist with the lab learned of the existence of Barr's records, all 12,000 of them. The information in them has since been used in dozens of studies on climate change and its effects on plant and animal populations in the region. It represents an invaluable record, for when Barr began the record, the world wasn't yet as concerned with global warming. What this accidental meteorologist recorded is worrying. Temperatures increased rapidly, winters have gotten much shorter, and plants and animals have been increasingly affected. 67 record highs in the last three winters alone. Eight fewer days of snow on the ground, which can seriously mess up the timing for plants and animals. And 48% of record highs are from the past 10 years. You can see some of the 44 years of data for yourself on Barr's website, gothicwx.org. And if you find any other hermits who are running their own websites, post it on social media and tag the show. Facebook and Instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts, and Twitter at brainonfactspod. Barr says he'll stay in his cabin in Gothic as long as he can, but definitely for at least five more years, so he'll have made an even 50 years worth of recordings. If you're looking for a peaceful place to vacation, you could do worse than the area around the Kennebec River in Maine. Residents, vacation homeowners, and campground guests alike enjoy the temperate summer weather among the small lakes that feed into the river, hiking, fishing, camping, and being repeatedly robbed. You gotta take the bad with the good, I guess. From the mid-1980s to 2013, about once a week, one of the area cabins would be robbed. Valuables and cash were never taken. Canned goods, on the other hand, Batteries, coolers, winter clothes, and other useful items were likely to vanish. 
Property damage was minimal, but it kept residents on edge. Was it teenagers, locals, visitors, Bigfoot? When people began to notice a pattern in what was missing, things that would help you survive in the wild, they began to speculate that there might be someone living alone in the woods. As strange as that theory may have sounded, they were right. In 1986, 20-year-old Christopher Knight, who had had an entirely unremarkable upbringing an hour away, was driving home one day and just kept driving. Something compelled him to drive into the woods where he got out of his car and began to walk. He had a backpack, the clothes on his back, and no wilderness training. He'd never even been camping. But he felt compelled to go and live in the woods, which he did entirely alone for 27 years. Well, almost entirely. He said that he said hi to a hiker once. Knight strung a tarp between some trees and set up housekeeping. He was only a few minutes' walk from one of the hundreds of summer cabins in the area, but the spot he had chosen for his new home was completely hidden. Despite an utter lack of preparation, Knight must have been a quick study, because he survived handily in the main woods, which is saying something when you learn that he didn't light a fire during New England winters for fear of being noticed. Temperatures easily get down to negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 30 degrees Celsius. Instead, he would wake up in the coldest part of the night and walk around his camp to stay warm until morning. Knight was good at not being seen. He survived by stealing the supplies he needed from the homes and cabins in the area. He only took practical things, a few at a time. Before you lean too far over onto his side, though, I should mention that he committed over a thousand burglaries. Many people were robbed multiple times. Knight committed so many burglaries that people were able to find a pattern of his preferences. For example, he's definitely stealing peanut butter but would never touch tuna fish. While he was no criminal mastermind, he never left police with much evidence to go on, and they were frustrated. One officer, Sergeant Terry Hughes, installed a motion-activated camera in the kitchen of a campground a mile from his house. Finally, in the dead of night, the alarm for the camera went off. There on the black-and-white video was a middle-aged man copping comestibles into a black trash bag. Sergeant Hughes raced over and caught the man the people had only known as the urban legendary North Pond Hermit. At first, the suspect refused to talk, but police were eventually able to coax his story out of him. According to Knight, there wasn't any specific incident that inspired him to leave society behind. He felt a tug, like a gravitational force, and let his body follow it. The majority of his days were spent doing nothing. Not a lazy nothing or a bored nothing. According to Knight, he was never bored once. But a peaceful, purposeful nothing. He didn't miss people. Though if you hear him recount the emotionally reserved nature of his family growing up, that's not terribly surprising. Knight said he didn't like having to steal. He only did it for survival. And even though he'd done it many, many times, his heart would pound and he wanted to get it over with as quickly as possible. Knight's story was not only local news, but picked up across the country. People sent money for his bail, offers of help, and even a marriage proposal. 
I would do an episode on women who marry criminals they didn't know beforehand, but I don't think I want to learn that thought process. While Knight had folk hero status with some, he was still a criminal, and the locals weren't about to forget that. He was sentenced to seven months in jail, much of which was waived for time served awaiting sentencing, three years probation, ordered to pay $2,000 in restitution to victims, and complete a co-occurring disorders court program. This progressive program is designed specifically for people with substance abuse and mental health issues. The doctors who examined Knight concluded he likely had Asperger's syndrome, which made it difficult for him to relate to other people. Even the prosecutor agreed a light sentence was in order. Knight fulfilled every last requirement of the court, but he wasn't allowed to return to his camp because it had been cleared away by law enforcement after his arrest. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Back to the Fort Fisher Hermit. He was not a hermit in the strictest sense of the word. Harold was far from isolated and had many visitors. According to his guest registry, a notebook held down by seashells, he had over a 100,000 visitors from all 50 states and at least 20 foreign countries. Harold was actually the second biggest tourist attraction in North Carolina by number of visitors for a time. Harold explained his popularity to a reporter in 1968. Everybody ought to be a hermit for a few minutes to an hour or so every 24 hours to study, meditate, and commune with their creator. Millions of people want to do just what I'm doing, and since it's much easier thought of than done, they subconsciously elect me to represent them, and that's why I'm successful. Remember, you can find all of the sources as well as the script for each episode at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friendly neighborhood social scientist and reader of books 
as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.